read the words to the version you intended to do? Well, you know, sometimes you just... No, I mean read it right now, because they're good words. Verse 2 or verse 3? Verse 2, I could not love thee, so blind and unfeeling, covenant promises fail not to me. Then without warning, desire or deserving, I found my treasure, my pleasure in thee. I have no merit to woo or delight thee. I have no wisdom or powers to employ. Yet in thy mercy, how pleasing thou findst me, this is thy pleasure that thou art my joy so i actually like that version better that's uh two new verses to that song written by john piper written in the last two or three years something like that anyways it's highlighting uh the fact that there's nothing within us that draws god to us uh, but he is absolutely faithful and has saved us and called us to himself we had nothing uh and were totally lost and separated and yet um, God brought us near, and that's the greatest act of faithfulness. So I thought you were supposed to sing that version. Yeah, it's a good one. Let me pray, and then I'll try to explain what I want to do tonight. Father, let it not be um, lost on us tonight that this moment is a great gift of yours. It's a pouring out of your grace that we get to come together and sing these songs and contemplate their truths and open your word yet again in, in this Lord's Day. Each time your body comes together is a reminder of what you're doing in redemption and calling us all to yourself. And not just in calling us to save us, but even bringing us along into Christ's likeness. You instruct us from your word. Draw us to yourself. As we looked at this morning, you help us to know you in an increasing fashion. We pray and ask that you would help us accomplish that tonight. That with just as much fervor and zeal as this morning we would pursue you now, that you would bless and open your scriptures up to us, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might behold you and be moved by you, conform to you and glorify you in what we see. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and take your Bibles and brief. Well, not briefly, but go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. We will be there briefly. Um, I think I've shared before on a Sunday night or, or maybe throughout the week that um, when you study for a particular sermon, no matter really what sermon it is, you don't always share everything that you've learned or studied throughout that week. At least I don't. Uh, there are a lot of things that happen behind the scenes, a lot of study that happens, a lot of reading and writing that happens that just never makes it to the foreground or never fits into what needs to be said or, or done. And I've come to enjoy kind of expanding on that on Sunday nights, sharing a little bit of where I've been throughout the week and other passages and other places and other thoughts that have come up. Uh, I did that absolutely last week, looking at John chapter 17, where um, we discovered what it meant to know God through Christ uh, in eternal life. 
And then this week we highlighted that this morning, uh, Paul calling us to increase in the knowledge of God. Tonight I wanted to continue that and um, point you to some other passages that I looked at and thought about this week that I didn't bring out this morning that I think might help and enhance um, what we talked about today. This great privilege and gift from God that he's known and knowable and that we have and are called to have a personal relationship with him. However, um, I didn't finish this morning, and so I want to finish tonight a little bit and then piggyback what I was going to say somehow into what I was going to finish with this morning, if that makes any sense. So, um, again, we, we highlighted from Colossians 1, verse 10, that we want to please the Lord with our lives, and the way to do that is increasing our knowledge of God, and not just brain knowledge or academic knowledge, but relational knowledge, uh, having a personal relationship with our Father through Christ is our greatest joy, our greatest gift, our greatest calling. And so it's not just knowing about God and it's not just pursuing experiences apart from the truth of God. It's engaging and chasing after God with our whole being, primarily being known by God by surrendering ourselves to him and letting him have uh, the fullness of who we are so that in turn we might enjoy uh, knowing him. I want to ask the question tonight now, how do we do that? How do we go about knowing God in greater detail? And I shared the answers with you this morning and thought I would try to unpack them a little bit now. So we know God, and if this is our chief pursuit, as it should be, and if it should be our chief desire, then we want to chiefly pursue these things. So we know God through His Son Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit from both creation and the scriptures in the fellowship and work of the church. I want to try to quickly unpack those things. So first, we know God first and foremost through His Son, Jesus. When we look into the face of Christ and we look into the ministry and work of Christ, we see the glory of the Father. We see the characteristics of the Father. We see the concerns and cares of the Father. Everything we see Jesus Doing, we can say we see the Father doing. Uh, Christ even teaches that Himself. We'll look at it in just a moment. But it, it's a wonderful thing that we can look into the Gospels and then any other explanation in the New Testament letters, even in the Old Testament, concerning the servant of God or the Son of God, Jesus, and then know that that is absolutely in line and in step with God our Father. There's never a question and never a doubt. At every turn where we see Christ, we are able to know the Father. John chapter 1. I just want to remind you of some passages that you guys already know about, most certainly. But again, these were my thoughts throughout this week, and hopefully they'll encourage you as they have me. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, as we often look at them together, and we should, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John is very purposeful there in his description of Jesus, describing him as the word, the eternal word, who's been in the beginning and is equal with God and knows God and represents God. And without getting into much of what's going on here in John chapter one, let's just suffice it to say John calls Jesus the word because Jesus is the clearest depiction of the father. He's the full self-disclosure of God. More clear than anything else could ever be. And this word took on flesh in verse 14 and lived among us so that we can say with the Apostle John, we have seen his glory. We can't say it as the Apostle says it from experience per se. I've seen with my eyes the physical resemblance of Christ. But in the scriptures, we can say the same thing. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the Father, we can look at the Son and see the Father and know Him intimately and perfectly and wholly and completely because the Son is, after all, the full disclosure of the Father. Flip over to Colossians chapter 1, please. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. There's a lot going on in that, that verse. Some ironies, I guess I could say that. We're talking about something that's invisible, something that we cannot behold, and yet, here's an image of what is invisible. Christ in the flesh makes God known. Apart from Christ, God will not be known. You cannot rightly know the Father without rightly knowing the Son. Verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Skip on to chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says the same thing again. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In fact, this is going to be the whole theme of Colossians. That we can look to the Son and have sufficient evidence to know the Father. That's what Paul's going to build to from chapter 1 in Colossians. I want you to increase in the knowledge of God. And how are you going to do that is how he's going to flesh the rest of the book out. Or the rest of the letter. It's by upholding Jesus and beholding Jesus and knowing Jesus. There you know the Father. He is the image of the invisible one. He's the only way we can look and see the invisible one. In him all the fullness of God is dwelling and pleased to dwell. Delights to dwell. Delights to make himself known. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of God is found in Christ. If you remember, there's an issue that's threatening this Colossian church. And the issue is a false teaching that tells them they need to add something to uh, their works and add something to their practice and add something to their belief so that they might really know God and really experience salvation and really experience faith. And Paul's whole letter is to say, none of that's true. Christ alone is sufficient. Christ is all that you need. Jesus is the one you should exalt. Jesus is the one you should look to. And that's exactly true when we talk about knowing God. There's not a whole bunch of other outside factors you need to add to yourself so that you might know the hidden spiritual things of God. You just simply need to study and behold Jesus. 
And so that's why we lift him up as a church, right? That's why we exalt him. That's why we want to talk about him. That's why we, we want people to know him and see him because that is where they know the Father. And Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 2 and 3, knowing the Father is eternal life. So we hold up the Son who makes the Father known. Hebrews chapter 1 now, please. Again, these are passages you know, but it's good to be reminded of them often. Hebrews chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews is getting at the same thing that John gets at in the first chapter of his letter, but he says it differently. He says in verse 1, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The connection there is spoke. So uh, it's not an explicit direct connection. It's not the same word used, but it's, it's the same principle. It represents the same thing. The word is made flesh. God spoke now through his, through his son. But in these last days, verse 2, he has spoken to us by, him son, by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then here's what we want to consider, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. As we highlighted this morning, knowing God is our greatest goal, it's our greatest gift, but we can't know everything about God. God's too majestic, too infinite, too glorious, too splendid, uh, splendid uh, all of those things. He's infinite, we are finite, our minds can't contain and comprehend all uh, that is true about God. And yet, what can be comprehended about God can be found through His Son, who is the radiance of His glory. So we can look in some supernatural, mystic, pretty awesome way at this poor carpenter who had no appearance that we would desire him, nothing going for him according to worldly standards. He was born in a manger, had often no place to lay his head, wandered about in this kind of desert land, rejected by most people, not someone we would call uber popular or uber attractive, and yet in him is the radiance of the glory of God. We can look into this outcast. And see something that the world has never been able to really comprehend. Beauty and majesty in a way that goes far beyond what this world knows. He's the exact imprint of his nature. This author says. It's very important that we take note of that word exact. It's precise. Complete. The exact imprint of the nature of God. So when we look at Christ, there we find everything we need to know about the Father. So how do we know God? We know God by knowing His Son and upholding His Son and seeing His Son, being known by Him, and then in an ever-increasing fashion, knowing Jesus. Flip over to John chapter 5. <clears throat> Let's hear from our Lord's own words concerning this subject. 
John chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus has healed a man and he's healed him on the Sabbath. And as you know, it's gotten him in a little bit of trouble with the religious leaders of the day. Jesus doesn't care much, but nonetheless, they're raising a big stink about it. And in verse 16, John writes and says, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, healing the Sabbath, breaking their Sabbath rituals. So verse 17, Jesus speaks up, but Jesus answered them, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he said, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, verse 18 of John chapter 5 is incredibly important and incredibly interesting. John issues his commentary here, and he says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. There's no question for John, there's no question for the religious leaders, the, the people hearing Jesus speak. It's absolutely obvious. Jesus makes himself equal with God. And nobody's permitted to do that. And nobody else does that. And yet, John says, Jesus was doing it. And he was doing it in a clear and obvious way. So obvious and so clear that it's the reason the Jews wanted to kill him even more. He did a lot that, was, that flew right in their face, right? I mean, here's the issue. Not keeping their Sabbath rituals. Uh, teaching better than them. Clarifying things that they got wrong. On and on and on. Stealing away even their popularity and following. Lots of reasons for them to be mad at Jesus. But the most thing, the thing that, that got at them the most, he called God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's not lost on them. And as we read the Gospels, it shouldn't be lost on us. So Jesus clarifies in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. So that you might look into the works and ministry and life of Christ and, and be in awe, be astounded. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and it is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John the Baptist, and he is borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing right now, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you would have believed Moses, you would believe me. Because he wrote of me. For if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? There's a lot going on there. A lot of things to unpack. A lot of side roads you can run down. But don't miss the big picture of what Jesus is saying here. The Son has full authority. And the same authority as the Father. And who's the Son? John has already described him to us in verse 18. He's the one who calls God his Father, Jesus. So Jesus is is making no excuse, pulling no punches, hiding no truth here. He is calling God His Father. He is making Himself equal to the Father. And He says, not only that, but the Son has the authority from God to give life and to issue judgment and to call out to the dead. And they will be resurrected. And in verse 29, they're going to be resurrected as He determines. Resurrection of life or resurrection to judgment. He is the final Uh, judge, the final authority, the final life giver, and all of that comes to him from his Father. You better believe Jesus is equal with the Father. Absolutely. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that Christ teaches here. Jesus acts fully on behalf of God the Father, and not just acts on his behalf, but acts alongside of him. Look in verse 43 of John 5. He makes it clear again. I have come in my Father's name. This is true about the Son, and 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 I'm the Son who comes in my Father's name. So that you can look at Christ and see how God would judge the world. You can look at Christ and see what God thinks of of life and evil and good and resurrection and and. All of these other things. So, I'm thinking through this week what it means to know God and how we know God and the glories of knowing Christ to know God. And I'm flooded with these texts that remind me over and over and over again that Jesus is 
the image of the invisible God. He's the full picture of the Father, the full, complete self-disclosure of God. And in his ministry and in his works, he even says that in John 5, all of those things testify to that very fact that he is the Son from the Father, equal with the Father. So we can look at the teaching of Christ, the, the care of Christ, the works of Christ, the miracles of Christ, all of those things, and see in a clear way the person and character of God. But then I think, what is the ultimate picture of the Father from Christ? The ultimate work is the cross, right? Absolutely, we look to Jesus and we see God. We can know Christ and know the Father. But what's the main thing that Christ communicates to us about the Father? It's in the cross. The whole central purpose and reason of of coming to earth for him. So flip over to Philippians chapter 2, if you will. Chapter 5. Chapter 2, I mean verse 5. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We're not going to go back to what he's talking about there. We're going to press on into verse 6. Talking about Christ Jesus, he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have all these wondrous pictures being communicated to us through the New Testament, through the New Testament, through all of Scripture about the glories of the Son of God, the glories of Jesus Christ, the authority of Jesus Christ in John chapter 5. He is a full picture of God. But what's the primary thing Christ has done and communicated to us? It's humility, as described here in Philippians 2. Humility to the point of the most gruesome death. I mean, not, not only did he humble himself to take on human flesh, which was a big deal for the glorious, infinite God to do, but he humbled himself even more than that. He humbled himself beyond what you and I even humble ourselves to. He humbled himself to the lowest point of humanity. And not just in serving the disciples like we look at in John chapter 13 where he washes their feet and he says, this is what it means to follow me. You, you serve. But he's humbled himself even beyond that. So he takes on flesh. That's one degree. He becomes a servant as, as a man. That's another degree. But the ultimate way that he's humbled himself is death on a cross. So here's the glorious son of God who possesses all authority, who's the final judge, who gets to issue life as he determines, who resurrects people just by his voice, all of those wondrous things. And yet the chief thing that he's done is humbled himself to a cross. And somehow in that humility and in that kind of a death, 
we're supposed to know the greatest things about God. Absolutely look to his ministry, absolutely look to his teaching, absolutely look to his conduct, all of those things disclose to us the person of our God so that we might know him. But chiefly, we are to know him through the cross, through the cross, by the cross. So there's something in the crucifixion of Jesus that displays to us the clearest picture of the father and his personhood in his heart. And what is that? And I think the cross can be summarized into three primary things. Love, justice, and holiness. I think those are the primary concerns of the cross, and I think that's what the cross primarily communicates about the Father, that He is, without a shadow of a doubt, the God of love. So what John would write later in 1 John chapter 4, God is love. It's who He is. And that's clean so, seen so clearly, uh, not just in His other works, but primarily through Jesus dying for us. When he died for those who didn't deserve it. God shows his love for us, Paul says. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we had nothing to offer, Jesus goes to the cross. While we were enemies and rebellious and deserving of condemnation, Jesus humbles himself to the point of a cross. The ultimate picture there is that there is a God who is loving. Loving beyond what you and I know apart from Him. Loving beyond really what we can comprehend. And that love is expressed when He looks at rebellious enemies and says, I want to redeem them. Though they have nothing to offer. Though they can contribute nothing to it. Though they don't make me more glorious or perfect or loving or any of those things. I just purely, simply love them. Our Father is love. And we know that our God is love because we look at His Son. And we look at His Son strung up on a rough piece of wood. Bleeding out. Despite all the immense glory and authority and power and all those things we've talked about. Despite all of that that He actually possesses. He says, I, I will still let these finite creatures crucify me. So that through my death they might be forgiven and pardoned and saved. It didn't take a lot for us to contemplate that reality, right? That in the cross we see the clearest, ultimate, best picture of God's love. I think we also see justice there. That it is absolutely undeniable. God will never let sin go unpunished. God will never ignore the sin of humanity. Our God does not allow himself to ignore law breaking. And the proof is that he's willing to punish his own son so that lawbreakers might be forgiven. There is no sweeping things under the rug with God. And if you're a Christian right now and you hold on to the promise that God doesn't hold your sin against you, which is awesome. It's not because he ignores it. It's because he's already dealt with your sin in Jesus. At the cross is this humongous, sobering, sometimes domineering picture of justice, divine 
perfect justice. And that's something that God would have us know chiefly about Him. I want you to know me, and you know me through my Son, and the chief work of my Son is dealing with transgressions, and dealing with guilt, and dealing with sin. If you look in Romans chapter 3, <clears throat> real quick, Paul paints this picture that justice is the chief concern of the cross. Or the redemption of God, I should say. <clears throat> Verse 23, we know this one, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift. So there we are in verse 24, immediately dealing with issues of justice, uh, legal standing, justification. They are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. There's the second thing, propitiation. A beautiful, wondrous word. If we want to reduce it and simplify it, a synonym uh, could be appeasement. God put him forth as an appeasement by his blood to appease his wrath, to appease his justice. Because again, God's perfect justice doesn't allow him to ignore lawbreaking. So he puts forward his son to appease his wrath and justice by his blood. And that son is to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is God concerned about at the cross and in redemption? Verse 26, being just and the justifier. Rightly dealing with sin. Rightly appeasing his wrath. Rightly removing guilt. But doing that in a way that he can also justify the sinner. The only possible solution is Christ. And so when we look at Christ, and we look at Christ chiefly on the cross, which is His main objective, the cross and the resurrection, we see an immense picture of love. We see an immense picture of justice. And those two things are true of God. Thirdly, I think we see holiness. Why is the cross even necessary? And why is justice important? Because God will not dwell with the wicked. And you and I, if we're going to relate to God and know Him and be His children, have to have that wickedness removed. We have to be made clean. We have to be made right. We have to have our guilt pardoned. We have to be drawn into God. God hates sin and will not delight in it and will not deal with it. And so Christ... I said deal with it. I mean put up with it. And so Christ dies on the cross to remove sin. Bring us through justification and sanctification to the glory of the Father. Where we will taste pure holiness with the Father. We look to Jesus so we know God. And in Jesus we chiefly see the cross. And in the cross we see love and justice and holiness. Those three things are absolutely true and crucial to knowing our God. Now, we look to Jesus and we see the Father. We know God, but we cannot look to Jesus in our own power. So how do we know God? It's through Jesus with 
the help of the Holy Spirit. Look in John chapter 16 real quick. Jesus is teaching about the ministry and the work of the coming Holy Spirit. In verse 4, last part of verse 4, he says this. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see Me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You and I cannot behold Jesus in all of his wonder and all of his glory without the Spirit glorifying him, guiding us into truth, being our helper, helping us to know him. We have to have the indwelling Spirit of God who is concerned with guiding us into truth, primarily the truth of Christ and truth of the Father, so that in exalting Christ we would know the Father. Look over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 11. Verse 10, the last part of verse 10. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Here's, here's what I'm getting at. We have to know the Son to behold the Father. We, we only know this, the Father through the Son. But to know the Son, we need the help of the Spirit. We need to be drawn in by the Spirit. We need the Spirit to glorify the Son for us, to guide us into the truth, to help us to understand, to help us to discern things spiritually, to give us an understanding of the things freely given to us by God. Apart from the Spirit, we will not know Christ as we ought to know Him. Trying to speed along real quick. So, how do we know God? It's in His Son Jesus, with the help of His Spirit, from both creation and the Scriptures. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul talks about uh, creation itself bearing witness and testifying to God so that people are without an excuse. We call that general revelation. Where you can look at every blade of grass and every flower blooming and every sunset and everything that goes on, as Doug said this morning, the changing of the seasons, all of those things, and you can see 
our Creator. We can see our God is sovereignly in control of all things, rules over all things, sustains all things, has designed all things. This stuff didn't just happen. God is in control. But there's also specific revelation because general revelation will never lead us to a right full knowledge of the Father or of the Son. In other words, it's not enough. It's enough to convict, but it's not enough to communicate the person of the Father. So we have specific revelation, and that's the Scriptures. The complete, full, written revelation of God that you and I hold is, and we call our Bible. John chapter 5, verse 39-40, through 40, Jesus is speaking again about the authority that He has, and He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you'll have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness to Me. Or they that testify about Me. The Scripture's chief agenda is to point us to the Son so that through the Son we might come to know the Father and have eternal life. That's John, again, 17, verse 2 and 3. So you read the Bible, not to gain just understanding or knowledge, you read the Bible to meet and know Jesus. And in meeting and knowing Jesus, you come to meet and know the Father. And in knowing the Father, that's where you find eternal life. I would break this apart, this study of the Scriptures, into two categories. I would say this needs to be done privately and publicly. Know the Son by your private study of God's Word. Privately reading at home and praying at home and thinking through at home and meditating and memorizing and contemplating at home. But it's also crucial that you be exposed to God's Word with the body of believers, the church. John Piper wrote a book called Reading the Scriptures Supernaturally. And in that book, he highlights that the Bible is designed by God to get more out of it in a public setting than in a private setting. And I think he's right. And the reason he says that is because all throughout the New Testament, God highlights the need for teachers in the church. You and I have this gift, the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us, guides us into truth, gives us discernment, gives us understanding. Absolutely, that's what we've been looking at. But God also has ordained that we need to be taught. We need to be taught the Scriptures in a public setting. So regularly submit yourself to the public teaching of Scripture in all of its various forms and opportunities. So that you might know God. That you might behold Christ. Finally. We know God through His Son. With the help of His Spirit. From creation and the scriptures that He's given us. In. The fellowship and work of the church. Real quickly I'll flip over to Ephesians. Chapter 4. Verse 11. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the number one, unity of the faith, and number two, of the knowledge of the Son of God. 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You and I come together as the body and we encourage one another and we fellowship with one another and we work with one another and we do all these kingdom things together so that, one, we might have unity in the faith, but two, that we might all be brought to the knowledge of the Son. And what have we established already? In the knowledge of the Son, there's the knowledge of the Father. And in the knowledge of the Father, there's eternal life. The wholeness of the human being. The immense calling of the Christian. So that means you and I need to be regularly involved in the fellowship and work of the church. God has designed it to where we need one another. And we benefit from one another in knowing our our Savior together. And in the fellowship and work of the church, we need to prioritize the Scriptures. So that in the Scriptures and in the teaching of the Scriptures and the explanation of the Scriptures and the contemplation of the Scriptures and the memorization of the Scriptures and the praying of the Scriptures, we might come to know God in truth and better and better and better. But we must plead with God to give us His Spirit to help us. For we are often ignorant and we wander. And we're distracted. We need God to give us His Spirit to help us. Primarily to see Jesus. So that in seeing Jesus. We would finally come to know God. As I said this morning, one of the chief gifts of us, uh, gifts to us from God is that He has made Himself knowable. That we can know Him through His Son. I pray we would become a people that prioritize that relationship. That we would cling to Christ knowing that it's only through Him with the help of His Spirit that we can know God. Find the fullest joy and satisfaction that we might ever know. That we would see every opportunity that we have together as a church, every Sunday night, every Sunday morning, every other meeting that we have together, every other informal fellowship that we have together as an opportunity to spur one another on to a greater walk in relationship with Christ and the Father. Because when that happens, everything seems to be put in its proper place in this life. Trivial temporal issues are melted away in the light of eternity with this great and glorious Father that we get to know. And fleeting pleasures and temptations begin to lose their luster when we've tasted and seen that God is infinitely better and supremely more satisfying. That would be my hope and desire. Let me pray, and I hope uh, God will keep this these thoughts and His Word on your heart this week.